Hey everybody, welcome to Comedy on Vinyl. This week we have a very special episode. I, I guess they're all, you know, they're all special in their own way, but not every week do we have Brian Stack on the show. And Brian Stack is generally awesome, but uh, he is a, a writer, uh, has been writing for uh, every Conan O'Brien TV show since 1997. Uh, he's a performer. He's created some of the greatest uh, characters you've ever seen on late night TV. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, um, also brings to comedy on vinyl a first, uh, in that we're not doing a comedy album this week. Now I can hear those people out there saying, Jason, this is, uh, this is a comedy podcast. This is called comedy on vinyl. How can you do an album? That's not a comedy album. Well, to be fair, when a man like Brian Stack says, that this album influenced me comedically, you don't really question it. It becomes legitimate right then and there. Anything that inspires somebody to be funny or helps somebody uh, deal with a situation with a sense of humor, it, it influences their sense of humor, and there's no doubt that some of the greatest music I've ever listened to has also been very funny. It doesn't have to be a comedian making it for it to be comedy, or for it to influence your comedy. Either way, that's a long-winded way of saying um, that's what we're doing. So, um, also, I just wanted to very quickly make sure to uh, plug that uh, Brian Stack has a bunch of shows here in Los Angeles. He does Gravid Water at the UCB Theater here in L.A., uh, first, Sunday, first Sunday of every month. And uh, he also does Joel Murray and Friends at I.O. West, which is every other Thursday. The next show coming up as of this recording is Thursday, March 15th. Check that out. Um, he also uh, wanted to let us know that there are some Chicago shows coming up for Conan in 2012. So go to TeamCoco.com, get your tickets for that. Uh, I do have one plug um, besides uh, a drinking game, which I am in every month. Go to adrinkinggame.com, and if you're here in Los Angeles, get tickets. It's BYOB. You come to a black box theater and watch me and a bunch of my friends get drunk and act out 80s movies. Uh, This month is going to be Die Hard, and I'm going to be Hans Gruber. It's going to be a great show. We do this every month. We pick an 80s film. We drink. The audience drinks. And uh, it's a whole hell of a lot of fun. And then one final plug, uh, that is Lords of Soaptown, which is my documentary. Uh, I am fundraising, just trying to raise $5,000 to complete it. So if you would, go over to Indiegogo.com, search for Lords of Soaptown, or search for Lords of Soaptown on Facebook. You can connect with us there, and then go right to the Indiegogo page from there. And donate whatever you can. We're just trying to complete it. We've got a couple, we've got about a little over three weeks left to raise the $5,000 to complete this documentary that I've been working on for four years now. Uh, it's about freestyle walking, and if you don't know what that is, it's a very strange sport. It's like parkour, but with no discipline. And you can also go to lordsofsoaptown.com. I guess that's another way to do it. So, yeah, check that out, and if you would, please donate. Again, don't forget to subscribe to us, rate us highly, and, yeah, please enjoy this episode. Uh, glad to have Mike Warden back. Uh, he'll be coming back regularly. And very happy, of course, to have Brian Stack. And big thank you to Brian Stack for biking it all the way over here. Thanks so much, and enjoy this episode. All right, everybody, thank you for coming to Comedy on Vinyl. This week we are talking about The Replacements, Let It Be. And our special guest this week is Brian Stack. Thanks for having me, guys. It's yeah. good to have you here, and obviously Mike's here. Right. I guess it's not obvious. You're not here all the time. I'm not here all the time. I know. I've been this is your flaking equipment. out. I'm done. I'm done. I'll be, I'll be here more now. Okay. Since this is your equipment, I think it's yeah. more of an investment <laughs> for you. 
I was studying for the LSAT for the people out there because I'm thinking know, about going to law school. Yeah, I'm thinking about for entertainment. Law. Digging myself deeper in debt. I don't think that a hundred thousand dollars in student loan is enough. <laughs> so I really want to. Clearly, not I'm enough. hoping to get more. So. so let's let's talk about why you wanted to talk about this album, Brian. Because obviously, this is the first non-comedy album besides the Poco album for the Phil Hartman that yeah. we've ever brought up. So. Yeah, you know, first of all, I have to kind of apologize because I, I wanted to pick a comedy album, but um, most of the ones I, that really meant a lot to me have already been picked. Like let's get small and Weird Al and the Ruttles and mm-hmm. Monty Python and Bill Cosby. Um, and to be honest, when I was growing up, most of my comedy obsession was more directed at TV and, and movies. Sure, and yeah. I, I did listen to some comedy albums, but I wasn't like some of my friends who still have this enormous collection of comedy right. vinyl. So, but the yeah, the replacements let it be occurred to me largely because. I think I discovered it around the time I was starting out in comedy, like, mm-hmm. to really start performing, and I related to this, the attitude and the, the self-deprecation of it and the, yeah. the kind of, um, the, the way they, they seemed to feel like they were doing it just for fun, and yeah. uh, there was a lot of, uh, but, but they also were, they felt pretty lost. Like, I felt sure. really lost and directionless at that time, mm-hmm. you know? So I related to a lot of the humor in the music it's also a lot of the songs are a mixture of funny and sad sure like, yeah like paul westerberg said uh i guess you could say we're a sloppy rock and roll band that tries to straddle the line between comedy and tragedy <laughs> and that that's very true of a lot of my favorite comedy stuff sure, too a lot of my sure. favorite comedy movies and shows and uh like i was just re-watching party down recently and i was mm-hmm. like oh this this is almost like a replacements record because it's like that yeah. mixture of just Heartbreaking, oh, tear your heart out <laughs> moments with hilarious moments, oh, you know, yeah, and yeah. Um, or movies like Gross Point Blank or Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Yeah, you know, that mixture yeah. of uh, funny and sad is always, uh, or Patty Chayefsky, the dark and the light. Sure, you know? yeah. Um, I've always uh, found that some of the most, some of the comedy I admire most, and mm-hmm. that's true in music too. I think it'd be, it'd be hard to make an album that was a mix of both without people assuming it was serious first anyway so like if the replacements had gone out of their way and said you know we're a comedy group but we also like you know we make some drama in you know what I mean like you couldn't really nobody's going to consider that a comedy album they're just going to be oh this is a serious rock album you know? right exactly I don't think there's a lot of people the same with even like They Might Be Giants who are probably my favorite group that is still kind of you know hilarious you know they they're still a music group and they have a song called We're the Replacements by the way which, is, right. about, which right. is about them that's right <laughs> and uh and it, and yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I often found, even the liner notes, the replacements for right, would make me laugh, like, uh-huh. on their first album, which is called Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash, <laughs> even the title's like, <laughs> but, like, one of the liner notes was, for one song, was written 20 minutes after we recorded it. Like, you know? <laughs> so, that, that kind of self-deprecation, not taking yourself seriously. Yeah. Um, you don't but, get a lot of that in the punk Field a lot of it seems like a lot of punk bands take themselves way too seriously. I found absolutely, yeah. and, and it's one of the reasons the replacements used to kind of get in trouble with punk audiences mm-hmm. is they would deliberately like they'd go out if they saw Mohawks they would start playing country songs, <laughs> or, <laughs> and then if they were you know they just like to just make themselves laugh and yeah, like, yeah. often at their own expense. And I always uh, admired that, but also I always. There was a part of me that was like, oh, they could have been bigger if they played the game more. But right. one of the reasons you love them is that they didn't, you know? Sure. It's like a lot of your favorite comedians that you're like, oh, you should, they should, more people should know about him. If he, you know, the Bill Hicks type guys, right. who, they just didn't have it in them to kind of, you know, play the game or yeah. uh, whatever. That's so funny. Um, 
Mike, you were saying you've listened to more of Westberg stuff, Westberg's right? later stuff, yeah. I came into, I think it's called Eventually or something. I don't remember mm-hmm. his album. It was a 1996 album. was the first time I'd heard of him before I'd heard of The Replacements. Mm-hmm. And I really loved that album. And that took me into The Cure, because I hadn't even heard of The Cure at that time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that really, we it took me... sheltered. Upstate New York. Upstate, yeah. I was very sheltered, too. I didn't hear real alternative music until I got to Madison for grad school, because uh, I grew up listening. I used to think... Well, if anything's worth hearing, I'll hear it on the radio. Right, right. <laughs> I was naive enough to think. So, I mean, I always, I still love the Beatles and the Stones and all that stuff. But that's really, I never heard anything. I remember the first time I heard God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. It was like 10 years after it came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking it was just going to sound like noise, like a, mm-hmm. like literally like an explode, like just an unlistenable. And I remember just thinking, this is just a great rock song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I, it actually surprised me, mm-hmm. you know. What's, what's your history with comedy? I mean, I've read up on you enough to know where you went to school, and I know when you started on Conan. That's about the time I actually started watching the show, oh, you know? Okay. So back, you know, in uh, late night. Um, but just, I don't know, Just if you could just give us a breakdown. Sure. Well, I, I always was a huge comedy fan, but I never thought I'd ever work up the guts to do it myself, mm-hmm. uh, even until after college. Like, I used to go see... Uh, my friend's improv group in college, and he would say, you want to come audition? And and I just never had the guts to do it. But um, I was so mad at myself for checking it out that when he told me about Improv Olympic in Chicago, mm-hmm. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to try it. If it doesn't work, at least I'll know I tried it. Sure. And I, so I started doing uh, improv uh, right after college, and I went up to Madison, Wisconsin for grad school, and that's mm-hmm. where I first started performing at this little theater called The Ark. Uh-huh. And um, one of the guys I worked with, Todd Hansen, was one of the original Onion writers, and um mm-hmm. And Chris Farley was in that group, and oh, wow. uh, it was a really wonderful little theater. With we didn't get much of an audience, but it was, mm-hmm. uh, and the building's a laundromat now. But <laughs> <laughs> but it was a nice little theater. And then I, after finishing grad school, went back to Chicago, started doing the Improv Olympic, and mm-hmm. uh, worked in that agency for a few years. Did improv at night and on weekends, and then got uh, hired at Second City. Mm-hmm. Worked at Second City for four years. That was a great experience. And that was my first professional experience, even though we didn't make much. Mm-hmm. And then I got hired at Conan in 97. So just, That's just that's just crazy. Because it, 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 it sounds to me like, um, you know, when you start out... I, I, I'm the same way. I can't I can't perform for crap. That's I mean, I do it once a month, but I can't do, like... I, I just can't do it. So I understand the, the fright, but I don't understand the getting over it part. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, no one was more scared than me. That's for yeah. sure. I was like... And uh, I'm, I still, like, I could never even imagine doing stand-up, like, I, even though I admire it tremendously. Like, they used to even uh, poke fun at me at Second City if I had to go out and talk to the audience mm-hmm. as myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I could go out there in character, no problem, but if I had to go out there and just say, uh, if they said, just go out and stall, you know, stall, we're getting our costumes on or something, I would just, <laughs> I would be like, oh, please, please. <laughs> um, so I admire stand-ups tremendously. I don't know how they do it. And, uh, I, I feel the same way. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've done uh, all the classes at UCB. I've seen you perform at UCB a bunch with Ask Hat and stuff. Oh, yeah, great. yeah, yeah. So I, but I couldn't understand stand. I love stand-up, and I'm sure. a stand-up nerd, and I listen to it every chance I get. Yeah. But like to do it to me, it just. It, I, I couldn't do it. It's like, make me laugh, funny boys. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, With improv, yeah. even the best improv to me, it can be like, oh, if, if it's not really hitting and the group knows it's working, that's fine. It works, you know? Right, just like right, a good right. song. Just like a song. Hey, if you're standing there playing with a band mm-hmm. and no one's dancing, but you know it's a good song, you don't need everyone dancing. You know you're still entertaining people sure. as long as they're engaged, as long as you keep right. them engaged. 
But with stand-up, a lot of times, you you don't have that luxury. You need a laugh every 15 seconds, 20 seconds, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as, um, I mean, I, I know this is well-trod uh, territory, but, you know, the parallels between music and comedy, rhythms of music mm-hmm. and comedy. I mean, has there ever been anything... Uh, I don't know. I don't know what my question is, except other than you know, have you, Mike or Brian, have either of you ever sort of noticed like your best comedy or your favorite comedy having at musical? Yeah, there is a real rhythm to, and it's funny too because one of the funniest guys in the world to me is John Worcester, you know, mm-hmm. who's uh, also happens to be one of the best drummers in the world, uh-huh. you know, and 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 it's uh, I've often found whether it's Keith Moon, Ringo Starr, you know, there there tend to be a lot of. Conan's a really good drummer, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something about having a sense of rhythm, and and I think there's a rhythm to the way a line comes out, and sure. and oftentimes, you know, one little beat is off, and, and the laugh goes away, and you can't yeah. quite figure out why. But I think there there is a real relationship, I think, between uh, rhythm and music and comedy. I think, yeah. You know? I know Mel Brooks was a drummer, so he always. Oh, talked. really? Yeah, I so didn't he's, know that. He's talked about that a lot. Like that's he, he was very deliberate about how his comedy he wanted it to be musical and. You know the the rim shot though he didn't invent it seems to be his, his savior. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know he he played drums. But I yeah. guess Seinfeld plays drums a lot. Really? Of, yeah, a lot of uh, there seems to be a real relationship there. Or I mean, or do you play music? Have you played music, or do you just? I mess around on guitar. I'm not. I never yeah. got advanced with it, but it, it, I really I love to play. You know, just mess around and um and I'm always drumming nervously, uh, even <laughs> though I just have a little practice drum kit. I, I never learned how to really play the drums. Well, but uh, but I'm always. It's just people in the office. I'm always. That's like one of my nervous habits. Uh-huh. Just like, <laughs> but uh, that's more just uh, anxiety than right. <laughs> a musical drive. Open wide, the doctor's here. Everything is fine. Got nothing to fear. Strap them down. All right, I guess. Stop your ball. That's a uh, man. I guess that'd be a deep well to jump into. Anxiety <laughs> and comedy. I mean, I, I at least I you know I know my whole family's got OCD, and I guess I'm the only one who turned that into comedy. Uh, you know, but I. Uh, what about you, Mike? Just out of curiosity, anxiety-wise, <laughs> I, I want. I like to. I, I'm on the opposite. With I don't know. I don't have any. I don't do that. I, no. I, I'm performing though. For me, like when I'm doing improv or when I'm doing even a theater play or musical or anything like that, even playing with my band or whatever, it's like. I want to be out there. I need to. Like, yeah. I want to be on stage. I want to be in front of everybody so yeah. much. And it's weird that that the one aspect, like stand up, I could never do. It's the one thing that scares me. Which may, maybe why I should mm-hmm. try to do it sometime, just to to get over that. You but, should do it. Yeah, I know. That'd be fun. I'd watch it. <laughs> I'd watch it. And not to watch you bomb. Yeah. The grin looks like right. I want. No, to but I, I love it. I, my father was a drummer. He's one of the funniest people I've ever 
ever met. You know, that's where a lot of my, where I became, he introduced me to most of the comedy stuff I listened to. He was a drummer, and I play piano, and I play a bunch of instruments, too. But I, I think that you see a lot of that crossover with, everyone says that every comedian wants to be a rock star, and every rock star wants to be a comedian. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure, yeah. That's really true. It's funny, too, because, like, um, I... Like Jack White, you know, from the White Stripes, uh, uh, yeah. Conan, Conan did a uh, White Stripes video and he said he wanted to talk to Jack White about guitars and the blues. And, uh-huh. and Jack White's like, yeah, yeah, but in the monorail episode. Um, and he said he <laughs> was just a big comedy nerd. Like, he just was uh, really obsessed with details about uh, Simpsons. And and uh, I've often found with a lot of our guests, I'm amazed at the obscure bits they know about or the, <laughs> yeah. like, John Mayer brought up a bit we did, like, seven years before that was oh, about shit. tea copywriters having a cage match and it was like I'm like seriously you remember because it was a bit I had loved that Glazer and McCann had done and I'm like oh man he remembers like some of our favorite stuff and yeah. it was not recurring bits just right. really weird obscure stuff that you love and and uh, yeah there's a lot of musicians that seem to be comedy you're fans. seeing that a lot in SNL I think even yeah. a lot of the best hosts nowadays are musicians who cross over to host sure. Michael Bublé was that Michael Bublé was great yeah. and he was in sketches before when he was just a musical guest yeah you know I think you're seeing that yeah I mean there there is a, <laughs> a confidence in rhythm and a confidence in melody that uh, maybe maybe you kind of need to carry you through like you know you get you like here's my song I get to do my song I get to carry it from beginning to end I think if you're out there doing improv and in your head you've got a you've got a rhythm or you've got a melody you've got a thing to play out they're very similar yeah you know there's, um, a, there's a skill set there with, with, with a lot of the front men in bands and stuff when I was playing with with my band every single night that you're playing there's downtime in between songs that you need to be working with the audience, you know, yeah. you can be talking with them. And being so serious is so, it's just draining, you know, this next song's about death, and we're, you know, so you just yeah. make people laugh, you're, you're cracking, so it just, I think it kind of, it's a skill that's learned while they're on stage that they might not even know, a lot of comedian musicians don't know that they're really developing that skill. Sure. But they are. I often find, too, that a lot of the, it, the, the funniest people write the best sad songs too like yeah. Bob Dylan or Westerberg or oh, yeah. you know Elvis Costello or Steve Earle or you know they, these people that ha- it takes a really good sense of humor to write a song that, that has some gray area to it I mm-hmm. think and um, that's one of the reasons I think Westerberg songs with the replacements are so powerful to me is they, they, mm-hmm. they just um, that mixture of funny and sad you know and like yeah. uh, but there's always humor underneath it even sure. they, there's no um serious kind of ponderous you know sort of like <laughs> there's nothing pretentious about it no not at all I don't think they had a pretentious bone in their body you know? right is there anything like that you've written that you can where you can sort of feel this album in it like coming out well it's funny because I a lot of the I, I don't know why this is but a lot of the stuff I was drawn to write you know at Conan and stuff often had this mixture of uh, like a lot of the characters I would play would be gleefully moving forward despite their horrible lives like yeah. <laughs> like the, I did a character called the interrupter yeah. where where he but basically he's 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 super upbeat but everything he's describing about his life like living in a dumpster behind the port authority <laughs> bus terminal or having seven different types of hepatitis and so there's always this or you know that the ghost cleaner character I did yeah. he's singing about horrible things <laughs> but it's that sort of like everything's fine you know sort of attitude mixed with the dark stuff and um I think that's something I've always been drawn to as a viewer and as as a writer you know just stuff that uh mixes those two things like 
it's probably I think a lot of the things that horrify me in real life, mm-hmm. like I, I when they're dealt with in the abstract in comedy, it's my way of almost like making them less scary or sure. less <laughs> less disturbing. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, oh, that's how I'll deal with it. I'll just confront it head on and mm-hmm. just <laughs> write a stupid joke about it. You know. Well, uh, I, I, I'm trying to, you know, I, I guess I just ask the straightforward question to you, and I want, I want, I'll stick with the album, but I, I just want to know what it's like to write comedy every day. I try, but I don't get to do it professionally. You know? Oh, you know, it's it's uh, it's weird because I'm, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to to do it, even though there are days where you're just like, oh wow, I don't feel like I, I'm just, you know, the blindy's not flowing, and you just start, <laughs> there's just nothing coming, and sure. uh, you hope someone else has an idea that day, and right. or you hope you can help with their idea, you know, or mm-hmm. um. But it's amazing because, like, I remember um, Peter Buck from REM saying, you know, that they would get together every day to write songs mm-hmm. with REM, but some days they wouldn't, nothing was coming. Sure. And other days they'd write five songs, mm-hmm. and you don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah. And so there are days where I'm just like, oh, I hope no one's even watching tonight. <laughs> 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 like, uh, but you always hope someone else has got it flowing that day if right. you don't. And um, so... Or you hope you can at least kind of help tweak someone else's idea, or, or at least support them and help sure. help them deliver what they have in mind. And but there are days, yeah, where everybody's just feels like they they're just got tumbleweeds going through their brain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's the creative way. I, I, I suppose the highs and lows are, are what the lows are what make the highs so incredibly satisfying. That's true. Without the lows, you you don't get the thrill of when stuff works. It's like then yeah. it's special, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's true. It's same with improv or. Mm-hmm. Music, like it's like it, if you um, if you know in advance it's going to work. There's no thrill. It's like yeah, skydiving. Yeah. If you feel like you have to start doing more <clears throat> flips so that it feels a little more exciting or uncertain if you're even going to land. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I think that that's without the possibility of total disaster. There's mm-hmm. no there's no feeling of triumph. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. And I, I say, just from watching the show for as long as I've been watching it, I, I don't know what it is about the way you guys keep the show together. Because there are times when Conan hates a joke or doesn't care to deliver it the way it was intended, where he's just having fun with the material written down. Right. But I don't know, you guys managed to... Oh God, I just... I, I envy that. Like, there's, there's something about, like, a, a well-oiled machine... Like that, you know, where even if all the material doesn't work, the show still works as a whole. Oh, I, mean, I hope if you've so. Got an, an interesting guest. There's so many guests I don't care to watch, but I'll still watch it just to see what Conan does with them, or yeah. maybe the sketches you've written around them, or what have you. You know. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, you know, we always hope that there's at least something, you know, uh, entertaining to, to be pulled, even from a something that isn't working. And sometimes stuff that doesn't work, Conan manages to, like you said, still pull some humor out of it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's he's such a brilliant writer obviously and like i think that's what got him through even the early days when he was really green as a performer mm-hmm. his his writer instincts were always so dead on oh, yeah. like yeah. i mean he's uh he his his uh understanding for what will work mm-hmm. is inc- really really impressive like I, he's i've rarely seen him ever be wrong when it comes to instincts for what people are going to go for sure you know some days we don't give them a lot of options and we have to just do what we have <laughs> yeah. but uh his and he often improves things at rehearsal with his own ideas and um yeah he's he's a uh he's a great writer obviously are you guys more comfortable at at, at tbs or is is it is it more is it freeing is it is it are there less constraints or no it's definitely more comfortable than the tonight show was yeah. Yeah. um the tonight show felt just too big to me. Like the yeah. studio was too big, yeah. the show felt too big. Uh, 
in all fairness, I think some of the, the restrictions we put we, we put on ourselves mm-hmm. because we were going in and going, well, I don't know if you can do this at the Tonight Show, can you? And right. We never thought about that kind of stuff at, the, at late night. Sure. I never remember once wondering, can we do this at late night? At late yeah. night, it was always, do we think this is funny? And <laughs> right. if we think it's funny, and we were sometimes very wrong about that, <laughs> but we still were, we would throw it out there. It was almost like being up in the attic, playing around, and, you know, it's like, uh, but the TBS executives have been incredibly supportive, and awesome. um, they're very, they don't interfere, but they're, mm-hmm. they're there to help and support. And if you saw them walking around, you wouldn't even think they were executives. Yeah. They're very laid back. and that's awesome. So that's been nice, and um, and they're they're very happy to have Conan at TBS, which has been nice because uh, mm-hmm. I think they like having a, a, a an original late night talk show on their sure. network. So so it's definitely been more comfortable. Um, I miss a lot of the kind of stuff we used to do at late night, you know, the more mm-hmm. silly character stuff. But we still yeah. do some. We yeah. still slip some in there. But it, uh, it's less like it, you're less likely to see a prospector come, you know, <laughs> <laughs> digging in the stairs with his pick, right. and I'm digging for comedy go- or whatever. Uh, <laughs> we often joke about bringing out a prospector rehearsal just to see Conan's reaction. Like, it's, it's just, oh, that was ten years ago. We don't do that anymore. But um, I, I do miss a lot of the really silly character stuff. Sure. But luckily, we, yeah, we do still get some in there. <laughs> Try to ask people about their experiences with comedy on vinyl in general. Again, we'll, we'll get back to the album, but like, at least for me and Mike have both talked about this. Mike's talked about discovering his parents' comedy albums in the attic. They're hiding yeah. it away from him. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my parents giving me mine and sitting down just listening with my best friend and just like discovering comedy as a sort of like, uh, you're kind of in this bubble with you and the content, you and yeah. maybe another person. Did you have any experiences with comedy like that? I did, although... Uh like I said, I did have uh, some albums, and my, my, I remember my dad had the best of Bill Cosby with like, uh, Noah and everything. Yeah, that's and uh, button down mine about Newhart and all that yeah, stuff. And I, I grew up loving all. I got introduced to a lot of stuff um, more through the TV stuff than records, but I did hear sure. the records. And but I, as a family, we used to watch the Bob Newhart show, Mary Tyler Moore show, mm-hmm. Carol Burnett show, and yeah. back when you had to just be home to watch that stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. And um, so it was very. I, it was kind of like almost a, if I, I didn't have a big brother or sister, but it almost felt like they were the way a big brother would pass on a record to you. Yeah. Go, hey, check this out. That's kind of how my, my parents were with a lot of that stuff. That's awesome. And uh, I used to, before we had a VCR, this is how old I am, I used to on audio cassette record shows. So yeah. I, I was almost like listening to comedy on vinyl, even though I was listening to maybe a Faulty mm-hmm. Powers episode awesome. or yeah. or an SNL episode. I remember an SNL with Steve Martin that I could recite 
word for word from audio. Awesome. I didn't have none of the visuals. Yeah. But I, <laughs> I could remember it was the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band one, and um, I remember you know, it was it was it might as well have been an album. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. And, I used to do the same thing. I used to take that. I I loved the the the, the fake commercials. Yes, mm-hmm. I love fake commercials. So I would record them all at night on VHS, and then in the morning on Sunday mornings, I would take like a bunch of tapes and then find the commercials, and then sit there in my boombox and hit record. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I could take it to school and everyone could listen to it. Oh, and I'd great. like acting it out. And at this point, they pour gravy on themselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why people are laughing. Yeah, I, I remember a, a kid in my English class in high school going, you know, if you studied as, this stuff as much as you study these Monty Python tapes, <laughs> you'd probably do better in this class. And I remember going, yeah, that's true, but you're right, but who cares? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, comedy, at least as as we're discovering, I mean, the younger our guests yet, the more I'm realizing a few of them, like, some, there, there are a couple of potential guests who might have come on, but really won't, because like, I didn't really ever listen to comedy albums, and that kind of blows my mind, and it makes me feel old, and, um, but, uh, yeah, it just, it's, <clears throat> did you have anybody that you got to bond with over that stuff, or was it just a, a you experience? I definitely had, uh... You know, I definitely had friends who loved comedy as much as I did, but I, I don't think it compared to the bond I felt once I dis- once I started doing improv and, yeah. and working. With- it's almost like Del Close, you know, the improv group in Chicago used to mm-hmm. call it finding your tribe. Mm-hmm. Like when you find these people where you're like, as corny as it sounds, it's almost like that girl in the bee costume in the Blind Melon video. Uh-huh. Where it's like you, oh, yeah. you find these people and you're like, oh, these people are into, all- they're obsessively into the same stuff I'm into. Right. And, uh, oh, you, you also memorized these old routines of Nichols and May or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, I thought I was such a weirdo. And so I had friends who loved comedy a lot, but, um, I don't think I met people who were, who were as hardcore into, into it as I did until I started really performing and, yeah. you know, getting involved with Improv Olympic and stuff and where you're like, oh, there's... There's countless people like me. You know? yeah, yeah, that's a great venue. I lived in Chicago for only two years, but for the, the, the few, for the little time I was there, I got to see a lot of stuff. And I think it was mostly there. A friend of mine worked like the box office at the time. Oh, so I got okay. to see like a bunch of John Lutz, who's on. You know, oh, I love Rock John. He's yeah. so hilarious. You know, he and, makes me break on stage as much as anyone yeah, has. Yeah, yeah. I, I did a lot of ass catch shows with them in New York. Mm-hmm. And um, I just love the guy. He just he, And his ability to commit to his characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't get this. And Thirty Rock, he's basically just seems like himself, and he's great. Mm-hmm. But um, he does wonderful characters, you know. And uh, yeah, he's a great improviser. I just love the weird perverted turns they give his character, though. When he does seem like a normal guy, but then all of a sudden he's just a weird creep. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, and his his wife Sue Galloway is often on the show too. Is oh, she's the Dutch right, writer, right. you know? Um, let's get back to the, to to the album then then at hand because I don't want to I don't want to uh, miss anything. Uh, what are what are your favorite tracks on it? You know, I love the whole album. Uh, I think if I had to pick one favorite track, it might be Unsatisfied, but I, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to narrow it down. And like I said, the the mixture of uh, funny and sad, and also sometimes in the same line, like mm-hmm. like in I Will Dare, where he sings uh, "Ain't Lost Yet, So I Gotta Be a Winner." Bacon and cigarettes, a lousy dinner, <laughs> and it's like it's just the idea of like he's. Sounding optimistic, but he's also saying, "I just had bacon and cigarettes for dinner. <laughs> right. My life isn't really that good." Or uh, just, um, I think it's that uh, you know the, the combination of uh, 
sometimes just silly juvenile songs like mm-hmm. Tommy gets his tonsils out. Yeah, you know, or the the the, um, the dent the orthodontist saying, uh, you know, uh, get this over with. I tee off in an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. basically just. Um, but then, then like the songs like Sixteen Blue are as true and relatable to any kid who's ever been sixteen. It's just mm-hmm. the, the, how you're you're just. You're totally clueless. You're pretending. You're telling your dad you have a date when you don't. And uh, and then that guitar solo at the end of Sixteen Blue is maybe my all time favorite guitar solo, even though there's like three notes in it. Right. But it's it sums up that feeling of being sixteen and feeling lost and feeling like you're the only one who feels this way. And you're like, when um, I think like uh, Lou Reed said of a lot of his songs, his, his goal was just to make people feel like they're. They're not alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I would listen to a lot of the replacement songs, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that relate to these songs that sure. thought they were a, the only one that felt that way. Yeah. And uh, that goes for the funny stuff and the sad stuff. I yeah. Think. yeah. Is, there, is there any comedy that, that's ever done sort of the same thing for you? Because you're making me think now. I mean, there's a lot of really funny music. Like, my, my favorite bands are, like I said, they might be Giants. XTC is one of my favorite bands. And they're mm-hmm. both, they both have a lot of comedic... Uh, they are comedic elements to their music, but I really relate to the music, and that music will really flash me back to a certain part of my life. And I'm trying yeah. to think if there's any comedy that does. For me, it feels like comedy is just like if it's funny, it's consistently funny, and I'm finding something new in it, and it doesn't necessarily flash me back. I don't know if there's any comedy that flashes either you guys back to a certain time in your life or not. It, it's uh, I think when the, the things like Steve Martin's like the stuff on record takes yeah. me back because. That's um, something he moved on from. So I still think of that as something that was part of his career in the past when I was a kid. And so, um, or Richard Pryor, I think he he was still to this day. I think if you watch that live in concert, yeah. uh, I think I think Pauline Kael, the critic, said that was the single greatest one person performance ever yeah. put on film. And I I can't really argue with that. It was yeah. just amazing. And um, so sometimes when I see some of that stuff, it does take me back. Or when I see early SNL or SCTV, mm. like, it's amazing. On YouTube, I just recently saw Martin Short doing the scenes from an idiot's marriage the, oh. <laughs> from SCTV. It was a combination of Jerry Lewis and Ingmar Bergman. Oh, yeah. And bits like that just meant so much to me as a kid. And mm-hmm. I watch them today, and it just takes me back to that feeling of discovering it and feeling like, it was almost written just for you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even though it was, it was, yeah, yeah. But you could tell they were really trying to make themselves laugh too. That mm-hmm. you'd see that in the Muppet Show or in Bullwinkle too, where you get you're like, wait, I think these people were doing this for themselves and <laughs> yeah. hoping other people would find it funny. But and that, that's been true of a lot of my favorite comedy is what sure. you can tell the people making it really loved it. And like yeah. my two of my. Friends who created Eagle Heart, that you know, uh-huh. and also, and that's how I feel every time I watch Eagle Heart. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, Michael and Andrew and Jason Wallner, they're they're just this. They're making themselves laugh first, yeah, and then kind of hoping people come along for the ride, you right? Know? Yeah, and it's great for that reason. I yeah, and actually now that now that you say that, now I'm thinking about it. Like watching The Simpsons, I guess because I take The Simpsons for granted because it's been around now for 500 friggin' episodes. I think like all the early Simpsons flash me back to. A, when my parents wouldn't let me watch it, and B, when they finally <laughs> gave up. And then, honestly, late night, like, if I, there are a few clips you can find on YouTube where I can sit and watch I'm like, oh, shit, I remember staying up until all fucking hours when I was 16, <laughs> finally realizing that I'd, I like, because it took me so long, when I was 13 is when the show came on, originally, and 
because I love Dave so much, I hated it. So I was like, no, I'm not going to watch it. So I refused to watch it. And then I think, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be open-minded. I'm 16. I'm going to be open-minded. I'm going to watch some of the show. Maybe it's good. The first thing I see is an ostrich pooping presence onto the audience. Oh, yeah. Dino Stamatopoulos, yeah. Yeah, Dino's, oh, what a writer he is. He's going to be on the show soon at some point, too. We're trying to get him on, although I'm afraid he might bite my face off. Oh, he's he's a really sweet guy. But he, he, uh, yeah, I was... when I first met Dino, I was like, because he had such an original mind and stuff, I was like intimidated by him. But he's he's a great guy, real easy going, mm-hmm. nice to talk to. Definitely uh, one of a kind. Yeah. <laughs> Here comes Dick. He's wearing a skirt. Here comes Jane. You know she's sporting the chain. Same hair revolution. Same build evolution Tomorrow who's gonna fuss And they love each other so Androgynous Closer than you know Love each other so Androgynous Don't get him mad He might be a father But he's sure ain't a dad And she don't need Advice to send her She's happy the way she looks She's happy with her gender And they love each other so Androgynous I, I just think like when I think like I said that's the first thing I watched I'm like I can't watch this I don't get it and then like I'm like I'm gonna try it again I think I missed something and it turns out I did it's like exactly what you're talking about it felt like somebody was making something to test me like you know what I, I want I want to see if you get this and I sat and I'm like there's not that much to get it's just ridiculous and they, they that's all they want they want to do something that just just tickles a part of your brain that no one else was tickling at, at the time I felt like yeah, you know? yeah that, that's how I felt when I would see it too it's just like Plus, their ability to... Like, I, I really salute the early Conan writers like Louie and Dino and yeah. Robert and those guys because they really did need to reinvent it and not yeah. make it like Letterman show. And um, that's a really tall order, trying to create an all-new voice for a show. And, yeah. and I think they pulled it off. But even though they had a rough ride early on, I think mm-hmm. they um, they laid that kind of foundation for us. And I, I was lucky enough to come in with it already there. You right, know, and, uh, right. And, uh, but yeah, that must have been a, a rough ride early on trying to come up with a whole new voice, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, I was thinking yeah. about what you said, how about mm-hmm. how, like, sometimes you're watching something and a group of people around you sometimes aren't laughing, but you're the one, you're going crazy. And for me, I come from a very cerebral, like, I'm, I'm try. I try to, like, it's horrible when someone doesn't get it. I want to explain mm-hmm. why, you know, why, oh, why, know. why don't you get it? And sometimes you can't. No. It's like, wonderful. It's like... It's funny. You see how crazy it is? It's just funny. Why, why don't you get that it's funny? Yeah. I remember being the only person in the movie theater, literally falling out of my chair, crying with laughter in Spinal Tap when the, the little dwarves were dancing around the little Stonehenge. <laughs> yeah. And I was I was laughing so hard, and, and then I realized to my embarrassment that I was literally the only person laughing at that. <laughs> and I was like, what? What? And I wasn't thinking that they were wrong and I was right, but I just couldn't understand why they didn't feel the same way I did. That's insane. And, uh, yeah, I just... Uh, and so, yeah, but there, I think it's... 
we've had moments like that at the show too, where mm-hmm. it's one of those moments where it's like, oh, this is something comedy writers appreciate, but the audience didn't go for it all. Like, right. and you kind of you can't say, well, they're wrong and we're right, yeah. mm-hmm. even though sometimes you get all uppity about it and stuff. Mm-hmm. But you realize it's just so subjective and sure, you know. <laughs> But that's, I guess that's the wonder of it, because no matter what, you know that if you find it funny, there's probably somebody out there who's who's like, why the fuck aren't they laughing? <laughs> exactly. Know? Well, Tommy Blacha, who used to write at our show, he mm-hmm. did a bit that Dino wrote called Cutio Giglins, who is this, um, who's a guy, it let dress like little Lord Fauntleroy, had a big lollipop, and oh. everything he said was super cute, so it's like, what'd you have for breakfast? He said, a bowl of giggles, <laughs> or I, a bowl of smiles, <laughs> and, um... Tommy said no one was laughing mm-hmm. except one woman in the back who was laughing as hard as he's ever heard anyone laugh. <laughs> and he said he wanted to marry her. You know, like, but I think sometimes I like to think we do something for, for those people out there like that. You, there's enough of them out there that you like to think, well, hopefully they're, they're appreciating it. You know, Rick Moranis mm-hmm. said to Conan once that if they'd had a live audience, they might have cut a lot of the stuff from SCTV that means the most to sure. comedy writers oh, really? today because it wouldn't have gotten a big broad laugh mm-hmm. but it was stuff that you know some kid sitting in this bedroom was like oh my god that's that was written just for me you yeah. know yeah and um yeah that's a lot of my favorite stuff too yeah um let's i think with music yeah. too uh, you've got to write you've got to write for yourself right in a way i mean you got to have the audience in mind but when you're writing a song when you're writing a sketch when you're writing anything you've got to have if, you know, you can't be like, well, will other people think it's funny? I don't. Right. But mm-hmm. I'm going to write this because I think some other people are going to think this is humorous. Well, there's no investment yeah. in it yeah, at that yeah. point. I mean, it has to be coming from somewhere within you. I mean, I have no idea where humor comes from within me besides sadness from years ago. Yeah. You know? But, yeah. like, I mean, that's where... Uh, and I, I hope to God there's somebody out there writing comedy who's just, you know, I just love life and this is yeah. funny to me. But I think most people it comes from some kind of a sadness. Um... But yeah, how, how could you write for Justin? I mean, do you ever find yourself having to think about the audience when you're writing, or is it is it just for? Oh, you know, we I I think it's usually in a perfect world. It's stuff that we love that we also um, find a way to make it uh, appealing to the audience sure. too. But there have been things over the years where it's like, um, wow, they didn't really go for that, but I still love it. You know, mm-hmm. I still love that bit and. Uh, and other things, to be honest, there, there are days where we're writing jokes, particularly, let's say, it's celebrity-related or something, mm-hmm. and we're not really... It's uh, not something you're particularly proud of, right. but you're like, well, this this hopefully will work. Yeah. But you, you don't go home and go, oh, I hope someone sees my Paris Hilton jokes tonight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right. you hope someone sees a sketch you loved or something, but those aren't the... I've, my least favorite stuff we've ever had to write is, like, celebrity-related stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not... I'm not knocking or, or complaining, sure. Because um, it's you know it's just part of the overall landscape of things. Of but um, but my favorite kind of humor to write is at no one's expense. You know, it's not like you know, anybody you're attacking anybody. You know, even though some people definitely have it coming. I never mind sure. going after Dick Cheney or something right, right. <laughs> or Carl Rove or <laughs> oh, yeah. God, yeah. But um, some people definitely um, have it coming more than others. But um, but I prefer stuff that's not even related to the headlines or right. or related to any real person just seems know. to come from the ether a lot of that stuff yeah just silly characters that have nothing to do with uh anyone who's really walking around on the planet you know? <laughs> yeah I, I i just i like the energy of the new show and i'm i'm i it, i don't want to harp on 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 the show because i know it's it's 
not what we're here to talk about. But <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry. I just I can't I can't That's help okay. it. It does feel like the original the Johnny Carson Tonight Show where. You, I guess you guys don't have to get people drunk to make that show funny, but it seems, you know, to have the same energy as when everybody was trashed on, on the Carson show. Oh, you know what I mean? Well, thanks, like thanks. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, da, da, da. I'm trying to think here. I don't, I don't want to keep you here the whole day. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, let's see. Um, are there other, I mean, are there other musical acts that have anything even close to this impact that the replacements did? I think... Um I think like well, I always love the humor that the Beatles had too. Like yeah. you, know, you watch Hard Day's Night, and oh, oh yeah, and yeah. you can tell they're 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 as funny as they are brilliant musicians. And um, and I think that humor was in their music. Lennon had an incredible wit, obviously, yeah. and and uh, I think that Keith Richards, you know, I just read his autobiography, Life, uh-huh. and it's amazing. And it feels like there's just this humor and and uh, almost like he's talking to you uh, on the bar stool next to you. It's just all in his mm-hmm. voice and. So I think, and Bob Dylan, I mean, I think Bob Dylan's humor, I don't think he gets enough credit for how funny some of his songs are. And, sure. um, and again, like with Westerberger, uh, Lennon, you know, a lot of, um, you know, you get this guy who has a great sense of humor who can also just rip your heart out with the saddest song mm-hmm. ever, yeah. you know, and, but I think it's that, uh, there's always that humor underneath it, you know, that, um, you know, is there. Yeah. And, uh. So yeah, I think a lot of my favorite songwriters over the years, uh, REM always had a good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think, I think that's true of so many of the the musical artists I responded to. You know, and like I said, John Worcester, who plays drums for Superchunk and mm-hmm. Bob Mould and stuff, he's you know absolutely hilarious. Like his, <laughs> I would highly recommend people listening to Best Show Gems. You can get them on iTunes. It's just phone calls he would do to Tom Sharpling's radio show. Uh-huh. In character and just hilarious <laughs> stuff. Um, so a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of my favorite music has humor running underneath it, even if it's not always obvious in one particular song. Sure, yeah. I was going to ask something and I forgot. <laughs> what well, the title? Right. The title? Let it be. Did it, is that? Oh. <laughs> yeah, where did that? Well, that 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 actually came from uh, they their manager Peter Jesperson was a huge Beatles fan, mm-hmm. and they decided to just they love the Beatles too, but they said. They picked "Let It Be" as a title just to show that nothing is sacred. Oh, that, that's awesome! That the Beatles were just a great rock band. That's awesome. They weren't like God. Sure. So basic, and they were going to call their next album "Let It Bleed," <laughs> the Stones album. But oh, they, wow. uh, so they did it just as a, awesome. as a, basically as a joke on their manager, just saying like, "Hey, uh, I know we're not supposed to do this, but we're going to do this." <laughs> that's great. Is there? Um, it's actually making me think. Are there any sketches that you've written that were too dark? For everybody's taste, I'm just didn't because oh, that's of that. Interesting. Um, you know, I I once one one time we used to do a bit called "Guests Will Never Have Back," uh-huh. and uh, I had one of the guests. I wrote up a, a fake guest who was an old baseball player named Whitey Phelps, and mm-hmm. it turns out he was a white supremacist, and that's why he was called Whitey Phelps. And Conan didn't know that, so he asked him about how he got his nickname, and he and uh, I think things like even though I had the audience booing him. Mm-hmm. And it was clearly not advocating racism. Right. It was basically saying we didn't have him back because he's a bigot. Yeah. Um, it was still a little touchy. Yeah. Because it was... Race is one of those uh, few areas that yeah. it, it's hard. Like, that's why I'm a little shocked when I see early SNL with mm-hmm. um, Richard Pryor. Uh-huh. Because they used to really push that envelope. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. But race these days, 
it's a hard thing to address, even if you're condemning the racist. Right. Because people right. get so up on edge about it, and yeah. their hairs go up on their back, and they're, you know, so um, that actually got cut, wow. um, even though the writers liked it and stuff, because yeah. it just seemed a little too, uh, <laughs> a little disturbing or something. And um, I've had other things that were maybe too weird, uh-huh. or like, I wrote a sketch once inspired by... Orson Welles' film version of The Trial, uh-huh. The Kafka's The Trial. Yeah. And it's a great movie, but I wrote a really weird sketch that Conan and the other writers liked at rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And when we tried it on air, it literally, you heard nothing from the audience. Oh, <laughs> like, it was like, that we, I was literally, I would have liked it if, you know, even if someone had said, boo. But it, was, <laughs> it was, they were just confused yeah. and it was silent and it was, it was a reference to a movie you know, nobody had seen. Yeah. And, uh, but we, you know, it got through the rehearsal process because Conan yeah. liked it and we all enjoyed it. But it was too weird. It was just, we had to pull it um, in editing because it was, it was just too weird. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, once in a while you had to, we, that was the nice thing about late nights. You could take some big swings mm-hmm. sometimes, even if you just whiffed bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I can't think of anything else. It was just flat out too dark. to write to you or is it more cathartic to see a performed or to perform it? You know, I think I would uh, I would really miss the performing side of things if I was just a writer. I yeah. think because I, I came out of performing in improv and yeah. one thing I always loved about improv was it was writing and performing. It was just spontaneous sure. but it was, you, you didn't have the agony of sitting with a blank screen yeah. um, and you're creating with other people. Mm-hmm. And one reason I always liked working at Late Night was it felt a little like um, the collaborative nature of it felt mm-hmm. a lot like improv to me. Yeah. Like where you're building on what something else, someone else said and um, trying to not uh, write anything off or, or say no to something until you really give it a try. Sure. Like, like Paul Westerberg said, you know, he was talking about the, the replacements music, but I think this is so true for comedy too. He said, he said, rock and roll is about mistakes and making those mistakes work for you. Yeah. And yeah. I think that in improv, that's totally true. Like if you don't treat something as a mistake... And you just roll with it and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. And just treat treat it as like an opportunity. You know, that as corny as that sounds, a lot of my favorite stuff in comedy and in music seems to have come almost up by accident. Sure. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Accidents that were embraced and not treated as mistakes. Yeah. I'm, that happens. I was gonna yeah. this is a completely it's off kind of off topic, but exactly what you were saying with mistakes. My band was playing a show one time and the power strip was pl- unplugged by me. I was jumping around acting like an idiot and mm-hmm. it got unplugged. So the guitar 
and the mics from the uh, from the horn section mm-hmm. were out, mm-hmm. but the bass and the drum were still playing. Gee, so was this band could this have been? I know. For the horn section? <laughs> so there was this <laughs> breakdown of the bass and the drums, uh-huh. and it worked so well that we kept it. We just wrote in this break with just the bass and the drums. That's great. Those awesome. mistakes, and it was like. It's like, yes, we arranged that perfectly. That's awesome. That's like a lot of my favorite stuff, yeah. 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 For you, Mike, has, has the music informed your comedy, or vice versa? I, I just, um, growing up, a lot of the, 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 all the bands I listened to were, had a comedic bent to them, you yeah. know? I mean, I'm yeah. just a big fan of Dead Milkmen, we yeah. were talking about earlier, and I, that led me into punk, and so mm-hmm. I'm just a big punk ska fan. So being a ska fan, you have bands like, Real Big Fish and yeah. Muddy Muddy Boss Tones, where uh, th- their songs, there's, they're based on getting drunk and having fun, so there's so much comedy in all of that. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. So everything that I write musically has that behind it. And although I wouldn't say they're, they're comedy songs, they're not Weird Al, they're not sure. Garfunkel and Oates stuff, you know, mm-hmm. which I love them. Uh, Tim mentioned they're not that, but there's a comic element between, mm-hmm. but underneath uh, everything. Yeah, and not really. taking yourself seriously and realizing that life, there's so much funny about life in the serious elements of your life, there's so much funny there. You yeah, know, I don't think there's a musician I listen to that doesn't have a comedic element to yeah. them. I mean, Queen, <laughs> they yeah, might uh-huh. be Giants and XTC are probably the three top, and they've all got comedy. Yeah. Right. I say I would say XTC probably takes themselves more seriously than the rest of them, but and I'm just a huge fan of punk, so yeah. So I love Westberg, what these guys did for the for the movement, but I'm not a big fan so much of the punk that's so serious that I mean I posted something recently, I, I tweeted something, and everyone's like, well, they're not a punk band, and I'm like, well, what's a punk band to you? It's you know, I just that's what I don't like. It's like why is it so serious that this is what real punk is about. This oh, is what real right. music is about. Wasn't punk supposed to be a rebellion anyway? Exactly. That, that's, that's what comedy is. Well, yeah. that's one of the reasons that the replacements, uh, I, I, one of the reasons I love them so much is they would they would mess with the rules within their own scene. Mm-hmm. Like like Westbrook said, uh, you know, the punks would say, there are no rules anymore. And he's <laughs> like, no, you're, th- you guys do have rules. You're not supposed to play a guitar, so <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 you're supposed to play loud and fast. You can never play a slow song you can never do it you you have to and so he said they would deliberately mess with those rules to show them that there were rules yeah yeah. that that, that basically that they were kidding themselves by saying there were no rules so they would deliberately fly in the face of those rules just to show them that's brilliant I mean that's performance art and yeah. it's best, you know, and I, it, it's when, I guess, I guess that's where things kind of bridge. I mean, sometimes performance art sounds pretentious, but a lot of great comedy, like a lot of what, like, Zach Galifianakis does, bridges, borders on not being stand-up anymore. It's kind of like, yeah, you know, performance art and, like, a lot of the replacements, a lot of other bands that I can think of that do exactly that. They're trying to make a point, trying to do something without being pretentious, and they kind of merge in that. You reminded me. I hate. I can't talk about my band all the time. Sorry, I'm not trying to do no, this. No. But you keep. You reminded me earlier about when he would come out on stage and see the guys with the mohawks. So he'd play country music. Well, I used to think that we were just being assholes because when we play a show, we were a ska band, and we'd have four or five people in the lineup, mm-hmm. and if they were all straight up 90 ska or reggae ska we play the heaviest hardest stuff we had but if it was the opposite we play we had a cover of i touch myself if it was heavy <laughs> hard punk stuff that we'd be playing i touch myself and mm-hmm. we had a cover of the um we did a cover of the the uh, the 
Fresh Prince of Bel Air theme, you know. So, <laughs> so we play that sort of stuff. But yeah. at the time, I thought I was being punk. I thought I was being an asshole. But mm-hmm. you're looking back, and I think it was just because we were just trying to amuse ourselves. We were just trying to separate ourselves from that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't like try to please your audience. Sure. Or, yeah. But I think when you're when you're kind of just um, messing with them a little or making a, a kind of a funny point, mm-hmm. sort of like I think that because uh, I think. You know, on the downside of like one one downside to looking up to a band like The Replacements, though, is it is their their tendency to kind of shoot themselves in the foot and mm-hmm. sabotage themselves. <laughs> a lot of my favorite comedians are not the best self promoters, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, like one of their songs, "Treatment Bound," these things we're getting nowhere as fast as we can. And, mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. and I think there was a lot of that feeling in the improv community in Chicago, like no industry attention. Right. You're just doing it because you love it and you're, um, but you're kind of secretly hoping someone will notice. <laughs> right. Right. And so you're, uh, it's that ambivalence towards, uh, aspiring towards success where you, you want it, but you're afraid of it, sure, you know, so sure. you're, you're afraid to take a chance and pursue it mm-hmm. because then you could get slapped down yeah. and someone could say, Oh, you want this? Well, you can't have it. You know? <laughs> right. yeah. And, uh, if you don't pretend, if you pretend like you don't want it, yeah. <laughs> you can't get hurt. Yeah, you know? that's true. And, uh, I've always been amazed, though, as being a long-form improv fan, of how there isn't... I mean, there, I say there's not a market, but there, it, there's never been a real successful... Other than the theaters themselves. The theaters themselves do well. You know, the UCBs right. do well, and the and problem with the theaters. But, like, when they try to do it on a television program or on a larger scale, it just doesn't seem... And to me, I just I don't understand why it doesn't... Why it doesn't translate? I know short form does, you know, with mm-hmm. loose lines and anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The and short form had stuff, but show the, for a little while too. But the long form stuff just doesn't seem to translate. It, always... yeah, you, you, it is almost like you you really do kind of have to be in the room yeah. to yeah, appreciate yeah. it, and and also when they've tried it, it always gets messed with in development. Like sure. uh, years ago, um, I had some friends that that in Prov Olympic they got uh, brought out to LA to try to do a, a long form. TV wow. project oh, really? and Del Close said before they even left he goes they're gonna fire your best people they're gonna <laughs> tell you it's not funny enough and fast enough and they're gonna ruin everything you love about <laughs> and that's exactly what happened oh, wow. and um, they uh, you know and it's uh, you know I think I think it's just one of those things where they're, they're in development there's gonna be someone that says it needs to be you know faster it needs sure. to be you need to have more laughs and a lot of my favorite long form is patient and oh, yeah. everything that runs that's antithetical to to television and not that I anything against television I love sure. television but um yeah short form like whose line you get that payoff of yeah. uh, rapid fire yeah. suggestions and lines it, it's no mystery to me why that works oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah feels like long form is what I mean it, it is watching a process and that's part yes. of I mean and that's why I actually have friends who have a big problem with improv period because really? because they feel like they're watching an ingredient like they're eating an ingredient in a cake you know because mm-hmm. improv is a skill you can use in acting but they don't appreciate watching well, I, I, it develop as a sketch well there was a there was an ongoing argument between Del Close and Bernie Solins who's one of the early founders of Second City and Bernie always saw improv as a means to creating sketches sure. like it was a and Dell said it was an art form in and of itself. And that, that's been an ongoing argument for many years. Some people think, no, it's just a technique for developing material. And other people say, no, it's an art form in and of itself. Sure. And I, I happen to think it's a, a great art form, but um, but I can't argue with people that say it's not for them. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I, some of the, the best, okay, the funniest times where I'm laughing the hardest are when I go to some ASCAT shows that the last 
15, 20 minutes of, of an hour show, hour and a half show that they've built. And then they just, towards the end of the show, when you've invested the time, and it's them on stage with the audience, and you guys together have made this, you know? And this is why, it, there's so much more invested in it to me. And it's at the end, it just builds, it's amazing to me. There's nothing greater to me. I don't know. When, I'm a nerd. I'm no, <laughs> I feel the same way when, when there's nothing, what I think back on some of my favorite long-form shows I've seen or done, and it's nothing can compare when it really works. There's yeah. there's nothing yeah. like a yeah. great long-form show, um, and sometimes you know it doesn't. But when it really comes together, there's there's nothing like it in my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you any longer, but I would like. We usually end it. We ask the guest, you know, you pick this album. Why would you recommend our audience listen to it? Well, uh, I don't think it's for everybody, but sure. I think if you if you like kind of guitar-based um, indie rock type music with, with a real sense of humor and a real sense of, uh, I guess, the, the combination of funny and sad. That If you like that in, in a lot of your favorite comedy, whether it's Arrested Development or um, Cheers or mm-hmm. Party Down or, you know, old, old movies that you love, um, I think it might be worth a listen because I think... I think it's got a wonderful combination of uh, funny and sad, and um, and it's just it's just a great rock album if you like that kind of music. Yeah. Not every it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but uh, might be worth listening if, if that kind of combination of stuff appeals to you. I think I think it's worth it for anybody out there because like our goal with this podcast is to get people to listen to stuff they've never listened to before. And if all if they have been a person, I'd like to think that there's a little person out there who's listened to every album we've told them to listen to. If that's you, <laughs> take a break, listen to some music. Don't just listen to to, to like quote unquote strict comedy. Give give yourself a break. Listen to something else that's got the same elements in it. Is there anything that you would like to plug, Brian? Anything that's coming up? Oh, uh, let me think. Um, Oh, I, w- I did a little part on uh, Eagleheart uh, in one of the upcoming episodes oh, that awesome. my friends Michael Coleman and Andrew Weinberg produced, and that was a real thrill for me, because Chris Elliott's one of my comic heroes, yeah. you know, and uh, he couldn't have been nicer. It's so nice when you meet a hero that turns out to be oh, yeah. everything you yeah. hoped and more, That's you know. Awesome. And um, so I would, if people haven't seen that show, I would definitely recommend seeing it, not just because I did a little part in it, it was <laughs> just a great show, and... Um, just like Delocated, you know, another show. John mm-hmm. Glazer, who used to write with us at Conan, obviously created that show, and I think it's amazing. And um, we're going to be doing a week of shows, I think, in, uh, Conan shows in Chicago in June, which I'm oh, excited awesome. about because that's going home. You know? Sure. But, uh, yeah, that's about it. Um, also, I usually do the first Sunday every month at UCB, I do a show called Gravid Water. If people haven't seen that, that's a lot of fun. If I can... This is the best show I see at UCB. It is the best show I see. My GOAT monthly. It is amazing. (laughs) I love it. It, It's It's, wonderful. It's my favorite show to do. Um, It's... uh, You know, there's an actor and an improviser on stage, and the actors memorize lines from a play, and the improviser doesn't know what the hell the play is. (laughs) And uh, I do... Also, every other Thursday, I do a show called Joel Murray and Friends at IOS. A lot of fun. Other old old Chicago friends. And... um, we just did it the other night, and uh, but yeah, I think uh, that's about it. And I, I really appreciate you having me do this. Of course, oh, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, I will quickly plug because I rarely have anything to plug. I'm going to be Hans Gruber in Die Hard: A Drinking Game on the 25th of this month, which is a Saturday. So <laughs> where do you do that? Uh, at Next Stage Theater, a really tiny black box in, in Hollywood. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It it's might fun. be sold out already. Everyone goes and gets drunk, and the including actors the have actors. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. These are all our, they, we give out um, kits at every show, and so these are all the I've I've 
some of them, like, a very year-old baby Ruth needs to be thrown away. But <laughs> they're oh, God, and there's an old marshmallow from a year ago, too. So there are things in there that need to be thrown away. But, yeah, every week, every once a month we get together, we just do a stage reading. And, yeah, I'm going to be Hans Gruber. Cool. It's going to be oh, fun. That's great. It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's a movie I'll never get tired of. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Um, well, thank you guys for listening, and thank you, Mike, for being here. Thanks. And thank you, Brian. Yeah, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. All right, it. <laughs> everybody. Uh, thanks for listening, and have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is recorded at Fort Awesome Studios in beautiful downtown Burbank, California. Our producer is Mike Warden. Our host is Jason Klom, and he's also the editor. Comedy on Vinyl is a stolen dress entertainment production. You can check out all of our other podcasts, books, videos, other audio stuff, probably some writing, at StolenDress.com. And uh, please check out Comedy on Vinyl at Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter.com slash Comedy on Vinyl. And please subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us highly, and spread the word. Thank you so much for listening to Comedy on Vinyl this week, and have a very good thing. I can lick the mix that through The overall good mistress, my big dog